I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast Series. This program, featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming, is sponsored by Montag Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. Frank Martin has been farming 800 acres in Hallsville, Missouri since the mid-1970s and switched to no-till in 2001 to stop the soil erosion he saw happening on his farm. Martin raises mostly corn and soybeans as well as some cereal rye that's harvested for seed and double-cropped with soybeans. He also tries to grow cover crops on every acre to bolster his soil-saving techniques. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, editor Frank Lester talks with Frank Martin about his long history with planting green into living cereal rye, a practice he discovered by accident in 2004 when he couldn't get a portion of his field sprayed prior to planting. They also discuss planting soybeans before corn, applying nitrogen through pivots, scouting fields on an electrical assist bicycle, and more. When Frank Lesseter made this phone call, Frank Martin was just perusing a commemorative copy of the first issue of No-Till Farmer from 1972. Hey, Frank, good morning. It's Frank. Good morning to you. I was just looking at this uh, premier issue that you had included at the No-Till conference. Sure. And I was wondering uh, how this uh, Plowboy Pete and No-Till Ned came out. That's kind of cute. It's got a picture here got a picture here and it says pete needs his 150 horsepower tractor for two reasons to pull his eight bottom plow and his combine how many issues did you run that did that did it explain why we quit doing it uh no i didn't say anything here <laughs> we did it for about a year and the prize was if you wrote the caption we'd send you out to dinner for a dinner with four people and this was about 1972 73 <laughs> And normally the bill would be about $30 or so, and then some guy won it, and the bill was $250. (laughs) And I think that's about the time we decided we weren't going to do it anymore. $250 back then would be, what, $750 now? Exactly. That's a a pretty big bill. Right. So tell me a little about your operation, how long you've been farming, and how many acres you got, et cetera. Well, we I graduated from college in 71. I was in the ROTC, so I was in the Navy for about two and a half years and then came mm-hmm. back, I uh, was at 74, 75, and farmed with uh, my dad. And then, uh, so I was farming some on, on my on my own, but pretty much uh, did things the way sure. my dad wanted them done. And in the 90s, tried to get him to kind of do some less tillage, and it was kind of a useless uh, exercise. <laughs> My dad died in, um, he died in 98, and so anyway, then I was free to try some things and decided I was going to start no-tilling in about 2001. I really didn't know what I was doing, but made lots of mistakes over the years, obviously, but, um, you know, I've kind of... I think in the last few years, I really have kind of understood mentally what it's about more than in the past. And so I'm pretty committed to the idea of my initial goal all all along has been to try to eliminate soil erosion. And that's still my primary goal. But I hear people who are doing amazing things much, much more progressive than I'm doing. But And uh, so it 
gives you hope that maybe you could kind of move, I could move towards what some of these other people are doing and have done. So how many acres you got? I farm about 800. Mm-hmm. All no-till? Yeah, I'm trying to do all no-till. Yeah, okay. that's that's what, I, that's what I'm doing. How about cover crops? How, what, how many acres of cover crops you try to get in? I'm trying to get it all done. Actually, last year I got it all done, but, but it, the only way I got it done is that I had combined about 30 acres of rye. And I had it in a bin. I backed up my spreader to it, ran my spreader full, and went out and spread about a bushel per acre and just on the ground. And um, there weren't very many opportunities to drill. I did actually buy some rye and hairy vetch, about a 50-50 blend, and was able to drill 15 or 20 percent mm-hmm. of the ground. And so that'll be interesting this spring to see, because I do have a pretty good stand of hairy vetch along with the rye. Sure. To see see how that turns out, I plan on trying to no-till some corn into it. So, yeah, we'll see how it works out. But the so, rest of it, I just broadcast the rye, and I'll have enough. I mean, it's not a great stand, but it doesn't take much to have a green stand of rye in the spring. So Right, right. You know, all the talk today is about uh, planting green, and my gosh, you've been you've been doing it for a long time, or at least experimenting with it, right? Yes, that's true. I My first experience with that was, oh, two or three years after I started, and I don't know, it was 2004 or something, I had sprayed a a field that I was going to plant no-till corn into, and I had sprayed it before I planted like everybody told you to, and and then, uh, you know, on the edge, there was a 15 feet that, you know, I didn't get sprayed because my sprayer didn't work out that way, and so I just left it, and and uh, then when I came back and looked at the stand after I'd planted it, and we'd gotten a pretty good rain and came back and looked at the stand. And it was like almost a perfect stand where I'd not sprayed and a very poor stand next to it where I had sprayed. And mm-hmm. so that's, that's when I kind of made that presentation, I think at the 2005. Right. No, I think so. No, right. No till conference or something. Right. And, and um, so anyway, I, I don't know if that, had any effect on anybody, uh, but it was it was just an observation made by you know basically a mistake you know that I right hadn't got that sprayed but well you were ahead of your time people probably thought you were some people probably thought you were nuts at the time it would never work and now today they're doing it yeah I think that's exactly right I think I felt like I was kind of talking about a crazy idea had a lot of merit then and still does now right. So do you have some rolling ground you're interested in curbing erosion? Yeah, my ground, you know, compared to some places, obviously, is pretty flat. But I'm here in central Missouri. My ground is a clay pan soil, so we don't have very much drainage down. So if I do anhydrous and I have a – if I'm going down a hill and we get a big rain, it can it can potentially just wash the whole track out, mm-hmm. uh, the whole – whole slot out and i just hate to see soil erosion just it grieves me to drive around the country and see people i I tell people that yeah these people when they till their ground they're getting it all prepared to wash away so you got you got corn and soybeans uh any other crops oh you know i have grown wheat off and on i just i don't have a very fond opinion of wheat basically just because it's and just more work in the heat of the summer and and there's you know there's risk and I'm not you know I don't really need the potential extra income and it's just extra work and last couple of years I've been harvesting my own rye on a few acres just so I'll have my own supply uh, so I'll probably continue to do that. 
But some people have found have put wheat back in their rotation because they can put a cover crop in so much earlier. Yeah, I did that a couple of years ago and planted a cover crop and it, I planted, you know, a five-way mix or something. And I don't know, it just never mattered too much. And I had mm-hmm. lots of weeds out there. And I guess it's a good idea. A lot of, I have about half my ground can be irrigated. So now it seems like, in a way, it seems like kind of a waste to not have something growing. But I do, I do think maybe I'm going to consider flying some cover crops on this fall. I haven't really done that in the past, but I think I might fly some into some beans to try to get some more growth before fall. You've cover crop, you've seeded rye separately, you've combined rye and hairy vetch, and you've done some multiple seed mixes. What what do you prefer? What do you think works best for you? Well, the last couple of years, our falls have been pretty wet. And if I hadn't have just gone out with my fertilizer spreader and broadcast the rye, I wouldn't have had anything on uh, just, just because, um, you know, the way the season worked out. So too wet to really drill and I'll see how this rye and hairy vetch works out this spring. I'd like to, you know, get some other species in there. I may fly some on. I may try throwing in a rape or radish, maybe a few pounds of each. And sure. Kind of see what I can see what will work without, you know, spending a lot of money on it. Well, harvesting your own rye and planting rye alone on the majority of your acres this year must have been pretty reasonable seed cost. <laughs> Yeah, it's just whatever the value of the rye was, eight or nine or ten dollars a bushel. So, right. But the, the the great thing is I haven't done any work. I haven't had to clean it, or I just auger it out of the bin into the spreader and take off. And you know, I can you can spread hundred acres in an hour and a half or something. And, mm-hmm. Right. You know, very little, very little cost. Right. So in a normal year, which we'll talk about 2019 later, but in a normal year, tell me what you're doing in March and April. Are you, are, are you an advocate of early uh, planting, or do you like to wait, or what? Well, I'm, two years ago, I planted my soybeans first, and then I planted my corn, mm-hmm. and I think I had probably the best soybean crop ever. I don't know. I mean, it was a good soybean year, but you know, from what I read, uh, I think that is something I'm going to try to do even this year. Maybe plant my soybeans before I do corn, or if conditions turn out that everything is ready at the same time, then maybe I'll instead of planting my beans with my corn planter, maybe I'll just try to drill them and then plant corn at the same time if I can mm-hmm. get enough sure. help. I may try to go in and and get the beans planted early. And if I do it with the corn planter, I think I'm going to put a little bit of I got set up last year to put in furrow sure. with my corn planter, so I think I'm going to put some maybe a reduced rate of a starter in in furrow with the beans, and maybe with an insecticide, a low rate of insecticide, and just to maybe help the beans uh, get up, you know, because it may be pretty cold when I plant, or that's right. my kind of my thought. If it dries out, it's still early. I may I may try to do that, and maybe well, the starter will help it overcome right. some of the issues of planting cold or right. Well, you're you're right. There's more interest in planting soybeans before corn than I've ever seen before. But I also remember back at the very first National Notowage Conference in uh, 1993, Howard Doster from Purdue talked and he showed the value of uh, getting another planter or drill and planting soybeans at, at the same time that you were doing corn. And I mean, even, even 25, 30 years ago, the, the results were there if you could plant them both at once. 
And now more people are like you saying, I think I'm going to plant soybeans first and then undo the corn. So when April rolls around, uh, when would you like to start planting? Or May, I don't know. I shouldn't say just April. Yeah, I I know a lot of people like to plant corn here in April, but it seems like it hasn't worked out that many times for me to plant in April. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I guess, like I say, if I would plant beans, probably even the middle of April or certainly toward the end of April, if if I could get through the ground and and uh, make it work, if the ground would work decent, I think I would go ahead and plant, especially okay. if I can put a little bit of stuff in furrow with them. Yeah. Well, let's, let's say you planted beans on uh, April 20th. When would you kill the cover crop? I would probably wait a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I guess it depends on, I would probably try to get my residual on before they came up, possibly. I'm not sure. I haven't really decided how I'm going to do it, but if I want to get some authority or something on, I'd have to, uh, Valor or something, I'd have to spray them before they came up. Mm-hmm. So, so that would be what uh, four, four or five days after planting, or a little more, or what? Probably. So let's say you planted your beans on April fifteenth. Uh, when would you plant your corn? Oh, well, probably as soon as I could after I got done with them, if the conditions were okay. Uh, since I got that system set up last year to put the in furrow, I do plan on doing that again with probably four gallons of of an in furrow with some, you know, capture maybe in furrow and. Mm-hmm. And so um, last year I used some uh, Amplify L on the seed, and I probably probably do that again. I've even heard people talk about putting a fungicide in furrow, so I may even look at trying to do that. I'm not sure if I'll get that done or not, but um, if I do those things, then then I'm also looking at trying to. I've not done any fertilizer two by two or two by two by two, but I'm. I'm working toward getting that set up for this spring uh, so I can have the, because that's one of the issues I've had is with corn, I've I've had, I know I've lost yield because I've not had nitrogen right there when it needs it at the beginning. Sure. And I'm working toward getting set up to do some liquid nitrogen with the planter. Well, as I've known for many years, you've been an innovator. You've been willing to try new ideas. And here you are, an experienced no-tiller, and you just listed probably five or six new ideas you're going to try this year and see what happens. Yeah, I know. I I, I keep thinking that one of these years I'm going to not change anything, but it hasn't happened yet. It seems like I'm always trying to do something different. Right, so. right. So have you been able to build organic matter in your uh, no-till soils? Uh, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't really checked it, so... I have eliminated most of the soil erosion, so I assume there's probably some improvement. But right. Do you think you're getting any fertilizer benefit from the cover crop? I haven't tested enough to know. I would think that there'd be some quite a bit of residue on top of the ground now with the rye I've had for you know a few years. And we did an article on you in 2009. I got it in front of me here, and we're talking about planting no-tilling in the living cover crops, and you said it looks like you got mellower soils, less compaction, and uh, moisture benefit benefits. You want to comment on those? Well, I do know that, you know, I can remember back when we tilled the ground, we'd have slopes where the, a lot of the topsoil had been eroded away, and the struggle was that you would disc, and you would have a bunch of clay that'd be clods, and you would end up with, you know, poor stands a lot of times in those areas. Uh, as you might expect, you know, when you were tilling conventionally. So, you know, now you don't have a stand issue with those 
those areas because you're not, you know, stirring up all that clay. And um, so, you know, you pretty much have an even stand over all the different soil types, mm-hmm. uh, you know, unless it gets too wet or something. But, yeah, I, I'm sure that it's been, you know, a long time since I've planted into tilled soil. But, you know, planting into un, undisturbed soil is, is really a great way to have a good seed bed. Right. Right. Um, you mentioned fungicides. Have you seen any root disease problems? I haven't used fungicides a lot. I did spray them on a few acres of beans last year. And uh, a couple of years ago, I actually put a fungicide in uh, through the pivot. And I was just kind of trying it out. And I didn't have an agitator in my tank to keep the fung- fungicide stirred as well as it should have been. But But I think visually, I think I did see an improvement. So I think I'm going to try to do that again this year uh, mm-hmm. on the corn, put a fungicide through the pivot, run the pivot, you know, as fast as I can, like a hundred percent, put on a couple of tents and just uh, try to get a fungicide on. I know, I know there's a big no-teller or big farmer up North of me that has a bunch of pivots and I'm pretty sure that, that he does that. And I think I'm going to go talk to him and see how he keeps it agitated Yeah, and, uh, and maybe do that as a kind of a, a low cost way of, Getting it on without having to, uh, you know, pay a plane or helicopter to do it. Right, right. So are you using any late season nitrogen? Yeah, I've been putting nitrogen uh, through the pivot on the corn. I thought you'd probably Uh, say that. Yeah, last year, that was about the only way I could get the nitrogen on. And uh, I didn't really need the moisture, but I just ran the pivot pretty fast and, and put some nitrogen on through the pivot last year i also for the first year first year i'd ever done it but i i put some hoses down from my sprayer and i drove through the field when the corn was two or three feet tall and and drug these three eighth inch hoses between the rows and put some nitrogen on on that way and i i thought that worked pretty good too and I'll, i'll probably try to do that again this year unless unless i can just start um you know putting it through the pivot Mm-hmm. Uh, although the problem is I still can't get my corners covered, so that's kind of a dilemma, you know, if I try to what I'm going to do on the corners. So. We'll rejoin Frank Lesseter and Frank Martin in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist, offering dry liquid and complete fertilizer systems, as well as auto steer carts. Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at montagmfg.com. That's M-O-N-T-A-G-M-F-G.com. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lesseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. When no-till got started in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s, the big herbicide that was used was Paraquat, which was used as a burn down. It was a chemical that came from the United Kingdom and England from ICI, and it was distributed in the United States by Chevron Chemical Company out of San Francisco. Well, at one time, they wondered why they were selling so much Paraquat into Western Kentucky because they didn't think there were any orchards there, which was the primary use for Paraquat at the time. So they sent one of their sales managers into Western Kentucky to take a look at this. 
and see what was happening. And he was kind of exasperated. He'd been at a meeting in New York City and wanted to fly home to San Francisco, and they told him to stop in Western Kentucky. So he was going to make a quick afternoon stop and then go on. Well, he got to Western Kentucky and went out to Harry Young's farm and some of these other no-tillers and quickly realized that Paraquat had a place in the no-till market. In fact, he spent two days there soaking up all the knowledge he could about no-till, and that's what led to Chevron going for a label for no-till corn and soybeans. And now we'll get back to the conversation with Frank Lesseter and Frank Mark. So what are you doing with high-tech precision tech, GPS, RTK, etc.? Well, I do have RTK, and uh, so we use that for guidance. It's been a great thing for somebody with cover crops. It's almost indispensable, in my opinion, because sometimes we're planting in conditions that markers would hardly work, and, and especially at night. I mean, you just you would not be able. You have to quit because you'd right. never be able to see where to go. Uh, so, guidance obviously has been a huge uh, factor. And uh, for example, if I'm trying to get some rye spread after harvest and it's dark, you know, I can go out there and set the guidance and just go like crazy and know that I'm, you know, covering the ground as well as I would have in the daylight. And, and of course, if you're trying to plant through, you know, three foot, four foot, six foot rye, then you know, you've got to have guidance. Right. You can't even see during the day where you're going when it's that tall. <laughs> I know. Yeah. You, you wouldn't be able to do it. So it's been a Obviously, that's been a great thing. And then, of course, I i don't think, I think I'd quit farming before I'd go back to using an old sprayer where I had to flip toggle, toggle switches on and off. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, swath control has been, you know, really a tremendous benefit to the environment and the bottom line and efficiency and everything. Well, one of our editors, John Doberstein, I think, spent some time with you uh, last year and he, uh, Talk about scouting, because I see you using a Trek electrical assist bike to help you scout. Hmm? Yeah, I bought a. Uh, I've been a big biker for years, and and I guess I'm getting older. And anyway, I kind of splurged and bought a very expensive uh, Trek electric assist bike, which has uh, about a three-inch tire, and right, and uh, it has a pretty low gear and. And I can go through basically anything. I can I can go through soupy ground or or you know really soft. Uh, you know I can, well the only problem I get if I get too much residue or it might wrap around my chain or something. But as far as uh, so if it gets a bunch of rye, I probably wouldn't go through that. But uh, if it's just six inches or a foot tall, I can I can drive. I can ride all over the place and and look at things and. The great thing I like about it is I can get some exercise, and of course I can cover cover some ground too, and I look at stuff, and it's fun too. I just like riding it. You're getting a bike for scouting, but it's paying for your hobby. But these these bikes aren't cheap either. How much you pay for that bike? Uh, Five thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. They're made out here, not far <laughs> from where we are in Wisconsin, so I know they're expensive. But they got it's like you said, they got these wide wheels on them for like mountain work, and it works in the no-till field. Yeah, these are really like aggressive mountain bikes, is what they are. And, uh, it's tax deductible. I figure it's I can deduct it as well as I can a pickup. So right, yeah. exactly. And right. Uh, you know, it's I don't know. You know, modern farming, it's uh, it's hard to really get the exercise in you need. And and uh, I have two farmsteads, and 
they're about a half a mile apart and I'll ride my bike back and forth as much as I can just, just because, you know, just because I can basically. And, and it's almost as fast as driving a pickup. You know, right. So, well, you're um, pretty skinny, so I know you're getting enough exercise. Well, I'm not as skinny as I should be, but. <laughs> well, compared to me, you are. <laughs> I tell people that I, I'm fighting old age. That's why I ride my bike. There. So years ago, you talked about no-towing CRP land. Did you have some of this or or not? No, I've never had any CRP land that I've no-tailed. But I think you. I think we talked about it once about how you thought it ought to be no-tailed coming out if they were bringing it out. Oh, if people had it, yes. Oh, yeah. yes, I agree with that definitely. Oh, okay. Right. I, I thought you asked if I had some personally that I had done. Well, I, I did, but I wasn't sure. So. I haven't had much. Uh, CRP ground, just maybe a few acres around a, a lake or something. Yeah. So you let's know, talk like about uh, 2019. Did you get planted on time or get delayed or what? No, we were we were really wet. And the the situation I had is that for the first time I had uh, I had gotten my seed corn in bulk in 50 unit um, boxes. Sure. And uh, I had been using this Amplify L, which is a Conklin product, in the past. And in the past, I'd always just done one bag at a time and mixed it in a little concrete mixer and, mm-hmm. and put it back in there. And and so this year, the dealer said that he would, if I would bring him the Amplify L, that he would put it on, you know, in the box. Yeah. So I had a box of uh, 50 units of 114-day corn and a in a box of 111 day corn with this Amplify L that I could not return because I had done this. So uh-huh. here I was, and it looked like it was not going to ever dry up. <laughs> and so I ended up planting the corn around the 1st of June in the wettest conditions I have ever planted. And I mean, it was really way too wet. You take your heel and you could make a go down two inches with it. Right. Um, but for the most part, you know, it hadn't been tilled and and it had some residue, uh, some rye, and so it actually ended up planting decent. And uh, we got a, like I said before, we had rigged up this uh, in furrow, so I had put some stuff in furrow, and and then the stuff seed treatments and the, the amplify all and stuff. And I ended up getting a pretty good stand on on most of the acres. There were a few acres that were really flat, and I think we had rain after we planted, and it just got so wet, a lot of it died. But it was only on a um, maybe five percent or less. Of the acres, and so, I mean, I after I had planted it, since I didn't have any nitrogen on except for what little bit there was in furrow, I um, went and broadcast, uh, you know, a couple hundred pounds of urea, sure, which which probably didn't do a whole lot of good. And then I, you know, I rigged up my sprayer to to put some drag these hoses through and put some more 32 percent on, especially on the corners. And then I came back with a pivot and put but quite a bit through the pivot, uh, you know, not not that I needed the water, but just try to get some more nitrogen on. And and so I think in the end, we ended up with, you know, decent, decent yields. So when did you plant your soybeans? I think after that, actually. So, you know, they were planted into, into June. So you uh, are you going to stay with the box seed idea? Well, I'm a little reluctant, but I... <laughs> I uh, I guess I'm going to try it again. Yeah, last year I uh, uh, last year I decided that 
I mean, typically I try to plant green, but last year on this corn ground, I, for some reason, I decided I had to get it killed because whatever. And so that was part of the problem why it was stayed so wet because, uh, and, uh, but I think this year I'm definitely going to just not, I'm not kill anything until I plant. Well, I, I sprayed it last year. Then we had tons of rain after it and because mm-hmm. I thought I was going to get it planted and right. I didn't. So anyway, it, yeah, but it's, I, I was, I was really actually contemplating trying to find the cold storage for those for that corn because i thought maybe i was just going to take prevent plant on all of it and it turned out okay to try and plant it i did take prevent plant on about um 15 of my acres i had rye on everything you know i guess in a way it it probably kept things wet maybe you know the rye actually went to seed actually it turned out pretty good it went to seed and then I think it was almost August before it really got dry enough to, well, I'd gone in earlier. I'd gone in there. The ground was still a little wet, but I think it was in for maybe in July or early part of July. And I was able to spray it to prevent plant because I had some water hemp coming up. And I sprayed it with 2,4-D and Roundup, but the rye was already dead at that time. Okay. And, you know, there's 20 or 30 bushel of seed out there. And so then finally it got dry enough i think it was actually august before it ever got dry enough to um to run a roller over so i broadcast about 12 pounds of, of hairy vetch into it with my spreader well actually i mis- mixed it with some fertilizer mm-hmm. and broadcast that and then i rolled it and then we had rain again after that so i have 15 percent of my ground that has extremely thick rye but also a lot of hairy vets and i i wouldn't be surprised the hairy vets is going to smother or actually outcompete the rye so mm-hmm. i'm going to try to plant no-till corn into it i don't know if i'm dreaming that i can do that or not but that's <laughs> kind of my goal <laughs> right right so you've been to a, a number of the national no-tillage conferences uh, why do you like to come to this event Oh, it's, I mean, it's interesting just to see all the crazy things that people are doing. I was really impressed this year, the innovative thinking that some of the presenters had. It's just, I just, I just admire them for what they're doing. And my wife says, why are you going to all these conferences? Haven't you heard it before? And, <laughs> and you know, and what's so hard about not farming? <laughs> I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of challenges and lots of different ways to look at things and, a lot of it is just trying to get your mind repositioned to think differently and to think about kind of the long term and think about how everything you do has an effect. Uh, you know, you do one thing, it's going to affect something else. And I thought it was interesting, the comment you made early in this conversation, how you think finally after 20 or more years of no till, you finally think you've got the mental attitude where it should be. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I think, you know, I think early on, you know, you kind of do things because you've been told that's what you should do or you hear people do it and you don't really maybe it's kind of more head knowledge and not not really uh, a deep conviction maybe or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. But now I, I think more of, you know, what's this going to do to my land? You know, what's it going to do? Am I going to do, is this practice going to increase or decrease my chance of having erosion or and not sure. really focused on whether I'm going to make another dollar or not? And uh, anyway, I mean, I don't have, I don't have debt, so I'm not worried about, you know, making the maximum amount of money, you know, in the short run to try to, you know, make a payment or something. So right. uh, that probably also has an effect on how right. I think. 
So you're drilling beans probably in seven and a half inch rows. What are you planting, uh, corn and soybeans? What row width do you have? Oh, I just have a you know thirty inch, thirty yeah. inch planter. So right now, one of the hot hot ideas seems to be planting or no-tilling in sixty-inch rows and leaving the cover crop in the middle. Any thoughts on that? I think that's a really exciting idea, especially especially if you have livestock. Uh, I don't have livestock now, for the people who have cattle or can graze, um, I certainly think that's uh, an interesting idea. You know, this water hemp is such a opportunistic uh, weed I just I'm just kind of leery about you know whether you're going to just have a bunch of water hemp out there versus something else you know a cover cover crop growing in the middle although I will say that a couple years ago when I had some wheat and I uh, planted uh, this uh, mixture of uh, cover crop I had tons of water hemp come up in it and I was really worried that um, that I would have a real issue the next year with uh weed control sure and it really didn't seem to make much difference i mean it i mean i had i think i planted liberty the next year maybe but i used residuals and you know some in season and and really i don't know that i saw any difference and if i hadn't had much weeds go to seed so Mm -hmm. that was kind of a you know you hear all the time you know you got to watch your seed bank and and how much seed you get out there and i really thought that would be an issue but i mean there was water hemp all the all over the place that went to seed in that field and yet it didn't seem to really affect my ability to have a you know pretty clean field the next year mm-hmm. you mentioned liberty so i assume you're you're using some liberty and some roundup genetics do you see the it's important to kind of switch back and forth well, I had not switched to Liberty until I think two years ago. Was a, I had done Roundup until then. I'd hung on to Roundup a lot longer than most people probably. I, I'm a, I don't know. I've heard so much about dicamba, and I'm I'm about two miles to the southwest of a of a town, and I guess I'm just kind of leery about the potential right drift effects of having it drift into town and be the bad guy or whatever i don't know i've just been kind of leery maybe unnecessarily i'm not sure but mm-hmm. are you still using roundup well not not roundup crops but uh, yes i'm still using roundup you know with the corn as part of the herbicide mix with these liberty beans i'll use roundup if i can get it sprayed you know the get it my burn down before it come before the plants come up i'll uh, I'll use it to kill the rye. Right. So there's lots of lots of controversy these days about Roundup, and we're probably not going to lose it, but th- there is some small possibility we could lose it. Could you no-till and be successful without any Roundup at all, or what would you do? Well, I guess as long as Liberty worked, we could use that. I, I yeah. mean, I could use that. I I found that for the most part, it kills grasses. It seems like maybe not as good as Roundup, but I've not had uh, that much issue killing grass with Liberty. Mm-hmm. So you know, I don't know if it'll get overused and lose its uh, right. You know, get, get resistant plants to it also or not. Right. Well, if we lost Roundup and we had Liberty, then we got to find another option to use. So can't can't go on and use Liberty extensively or all, all the time for ten years, or we'll have the same problems. 
you got 800 acres. I take it you're pretty much the whole labor force for this? I have a guy that helps me um, pretty much full time. And, okay. And, uh, you know, I have another guy that helps at harvest and planting. And then I have my son-in-law helps some now. He started to help some and part-time. So my wife helps some at harvest. And so, no, I don't, I don't really do it myself. What have I missed talking to you about? Well, uh, I would like to see people be able to have, uh, like in my situation last year, um, where you people had rye planted or some other cover crops planted, and then they, they end up taking prevent plant. Sure. I would like to see a program change so that they could harvest the uh, cover crop and still get uh, their prevent plant payment. Uh-huh. Um, and my thinking is that if uh, if they could do that, they could sell that cover crop for a very inexpensive rate, and that would encourage maybe more um, more use of cover crop, get more acres planted to it if if their right. neighbor or or maybe some people would maybe they would put cover crops on their entire acreage if they the next year or something if they if you had a a lot of cover crops and it. Of course, you know, the people who are growing seed and stuff, they wouldn't like that, but um, you know, I guess. But I mean, I, I wish the farm program would focus more on protecting the ground than just making payments to people. I, I don't think that's good for, I don't, I wish that wasn't, it wasn't the way it is. Right. Well, you, you look at our no-till benchmark survey and 79% of our no-tillers are planting cover crops. But then when you look at the whole national average, which includes conventional minimum till and no-till, there's only about 8% of the farmers that are planting cover crops at all, and it only amounts to about 2% of the acreage. While our no-tillers, I think that last year averaged 471 acres of cover crops. So if cover crops are going to grow, it's it's really got to come from the guys that aren't no-tilling yet. Yeah, I, I wish that the, instead of having these payments for that the way it's done now is that that the focus would be on that you would really make uh, cover crop payments uh, lucrative enough that even the the non no tillers would would just be almost compelled to to do it. That's what right, I think right, should happen. Right, right. It'd be such enormous benefits to the entire uh, country from a right. soil prevention, soil erosion prevention standpoint. Yeah. Hey, this has been neat. You had some great ideas. I think I will wrap this up. So I appreciate you doing this. All right. Well, I certainly appreciate you. You you probably had a almost more impact on farming. You know your hotel conferences and magazines, and probably about anyone else. You know, in the last fifty years. So, uh, sure, compliment well, you on thank what you. you've done. We've seen the no-till acreage grow from 3.2 million acres in 1972 to about 108 million today, so I'm pleased to have had some impact on that. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry. A reader wrote in and asked me why I wrote the book From Maverick to Mainstream, which is a history of no-till farming. And we did this after about 45 years, and I just 
thought that I've been around and following this for some time and all we've done in no-till would be of interest to our readers, which has proven to be the case. So a year or two ago, I spent probably 18 months off and on working on this book and turned it out. And uh, it's been very popular with no-tillers who wanted to learn the history of the job. And as many of you probably don't know, I've been editor of No-Till Farmer since it started in 1972 to the present, and we went from 3.2 million acres of no-till in 1972 to about 108 million to today. And I guess I'm like many farmers, because I've had the same job for 45 years um, or more as editor of No-Till Farmer. Other people have moved up in life. I seem to have kept the same job since 1972. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Frank Martin for today's conversation. And thanks to our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lasseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm managing editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening. Thank you.